All right, well, let's uh, bow together. Father, we so look forward to that day when we will be face-to-face with your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, when uh, we will see him as he is, when everything will be made right. And Lord, we just so look forward to it. And yet, Lord, we are here right now awaiting that time, awaiting that day that we so look forward to. And in the meantime, Lord, we know that you said in this world there will be trouble, but to take courage or take heart because you've overcome the world. Help us to do that, Lord God. And I pray that you would use your word today to encourage us so that our hearts would not be drawn down into the muck and mire of all the wickedness that appears to be prevailing, that we would uh, be able to have joy in the midst of the difficulties, being encouraged because of what you have declared is true. So, Lord, bless your word as it goes out now. Prayer, our hearts are receptive in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one thing that's really wonderful, if you know the Word of God, is that uh, our God is the God of all comfort, uh, who comforts us in our afflictions that we would be able to comfort others. And He does allow afflictions, He does allow trouble, He allows situations, um, but He's a good God. He's working all things together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His glory. And as we come to uh, our study in Second Thessalonians again, we see the Thessalonians are going through deep persecution. And the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit in what we'll see today, brings forth great encouragement for them, and I also believe great encouragement for us. Would you turn your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12. Now, as we come to uh, 2 Thessalonians again, you might remember the context of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, The Apostle Paul is writing a church that is less than a year old in the faith. And we know when we looked at 1 Thessalonians that in Acts 17, we have the account of the conversion of these Thessalonians, the birth of the church at Thessalonica. And we know that Paul stayed there three weeks and was driven out of town. They were so enraged about his teaching concerning Jesus, they created a riot, and he fled to Berea, and then Athens, Corinth. Now, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, we have the account of their conversion, where after hearing the gospel, they powerfully responded by the Spirit's uh, uh, work in their hearts. They turned to God from idols, to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. And uh, we saw that not only did they receive the word, but they accepted it as the word of God, not as the word of men, but the word of God which performs its work in those who believe. And then after sending Timothy to find out how they were doing and spiritually speaking, checking to their faith, uh, Paul gets the report and his response is that first letter of Thessalonians And it is about uh, 50 A.D.-ish that he shares that. And then, uh, as he's in Corinth, uh, we come to a time where I believe it's very close to the same time of the writing of 1 Thessalonians, just a little bit after. 
uh, where we have the same three people, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, still together, which means it's a very short time after the writing of 1 Thessalonians, we have him writing another letter. Now, it's apparent that uh, uh, these group of believers were very young in their faith. Again, probably less than a year old in the faith. And as we've seen in chapter 1 so far, and we'll see, uh, these Thessalonians were trusting Jesus, and they were loving one another. And they were enduring much persecution and affliction for following Jesus. And so Paul writes to encourage them, revealing that God hasn't missed a beat. He's going to bring about retribution upon those who are persecuting them. And they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Yet these Thessalonians are on their way to eternal glory. And it's also apparent that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, the second letter of Thessalonians, to protect and strengthen them from the threats. Uh, threats to their faith. Indeed, in chapter 2, we see that there was a false message supposedly by the Apostle Paul circulating, uh, stating something to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. And these Thessalonians were possibly shaken and disturbed, and, and the Lord, Paul didn't want them to be so. Because if the day of the Lord has come, then that means they missed the Lord coming for them. And so the Apostle Paul has to clarify that about when the day of the Lord really will come and that they wouldn't go through it, as we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5, verse 9. But instead, they're going to gain the glory of our Lord, having been chosen from the beginning uh, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And that the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father would comfort and strengthen their hearts for every good work and word. And then in chapter 3, after requesting uh, for the Lord's protection of them, he relays that these Thessalonians would continue to obey the Lord's commands. He's confident, which leads to the last issue that he needs to write in the letter, that there were some who were doing no work at all. And so Paul relays the command for them and how the body is to respond uh, to those who do not obey those commands. So this church is about a few months old in Christ, less than a year probably at this point still. And Paul, inspired by the Spirit, launches on some serious truth that they needed to know and we need to know. And if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, as you know, we're going to enter into difficulties, temporal difficulties, temporal persecution, temporal uh, situations because those who are not obedient to Christ hate him, and thus they will hate us. And within those difficulties and seeing the wickedness and evil around us, we can be tempted to be discouraged. Discouraged. And so today I believe we're going to see encouragement, great encouragement for difficult times. And certainly it would encourage you in your persecution, but it would also encourage you as you just walk the, the walk of faith in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to again to 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 1, verses 11 to 12, but I want to read up through it. It's been a few, a little while since we uh, uh, had our last uh, message in 2 Thessalonians, so let's read up to our passage from the beginning in chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, 
and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. Isn't that wonderful? Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is not only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our, of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. And then here's our passage. To this end also. See how it's connected. We pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I believe you can already tell this is going to be encouraging as you look at this, as you look at this uh, prayer as Paul reveals his desires uh, for these Thessalonians and thus God's desires for them and for us. And we're going to see it is God's desire that we walk worthily of the calling which we've been called. It's his, his desire. And he wants to fulfill our desires for all goodness and work powerfully in us by faith. Indeed, Paul prays continually that God would deem these Thessalonians worthy of their calling, fulfilling every desire for goodness and powerfully working through their faith. Look at verse 11. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Well, I could stop right there. That's a wonderful verse. Wonderfully encouraging. Because the reality is we fail. If you're a believer, you're going to fall. You're going to sin and you're going to ask God to forgive you. We're, we fail. But we're sensitive to our failures. We recognize we're sinful. And God says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the reality is if you're a true believer, you are blessed because you hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're not there yet, but we desire it. And God says, you will or shall be satisfied. And so often in our yearning that we would respond rightly and not wrongly, or whatever it might be, our yearning, we can be discouraged. But God wants to encourage us because he wants to fulfill those righteous desires for us to be like his son Jesus. So notice what he says. Here's the main part of our passage. We pray for you always. And then we have the request that our God may count you worthy of your calling, fulfill every desire for goodness in the work of faith of Christ. The quest. And then this is the structure. Notice the desired result. In order that, verse 12, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the structure of this prayer. And he says in the beginning here, to this 
end also we pray for you always. And you go, to what end? What is he talking about here? You could literally say, to this or to which also. Well, I think it actually points forward to what he's going to say, and it also connects what he has just revealed. Well, what did he just speak of in the beginning of the chapter? Let's review. You might remember the last time we were in First or Second Thessalonians. We saw that our enduring faith in suffering for Christ points clearly to the reality of God's righteous judgment upon those who are persecuting us. Look back in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. They were suffering for Christ. They were suffering. You can look back at the message we did a few months ago and read that and, and listen to it again. They were suffering. But their endurance was a plain indication that they were ultimately the Lord's and that judgment was coming upon those who were persecuting them. And then notice, he also reveals that it's also an evidence that we have been counted worthy of the kingdom. Now we're going to talk about worthy of the kingdom versus worthy of, of the calling in a minute. Verse 5, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. When you truly suffer for the righteousness of Christ manifest in your life, it is an evidence you are in the kingdom of God. It's an evidence that you're considered worthy to be truly his. And then we saw we need to wait patiently in the midst of suffering that our ultimate relief from suffering comes when Christ comes and sinners are eternally recompensed. Because, yes, Satan is our enemy, but that opposition comes through people. And so look at, notice what he says. That relief comes, verse 6, for after all it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Paul was afflicted too. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. You see, we're going to be taken up. We know from uh, 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be taken away. And then there's a seven-year tribulation. And Christ is going to come the day of the Lord and deal out retribution on those who do not know God and those who rejected the gospel. And that's when our ultimate relief comes as our persecutors are dealt with righteously. Righteous judgment. Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an unbeliever. There's no relationship. They don't know God. There's no relationship. Jesus would say to those who thought they knew him, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Your sin's in the way. You thought you knew me, but you don't. And those are the same who do not obey the gospel. You see, God declares that all men everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. And he calls upon everyone to repent and believe. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. If you don't do so, then you are guilty and you are on your way to eternal destruction because God is so gracious he sent his son in our place. You reject that, you're on your way to, to, to destruction. 
And he says here, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It's, a, it's black darkness, it's eternal fire, it's separation from a good, gracious, kind, merciful God forever. When he comes to be glorified uh, in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe for our testimony to you was believed. You believed it, Thessalonians. You didn't think it was the word of man. You believed it as the word of God. So be encouraged. Our suffering's temporal and God will gloriously ultimately deliver us from it. Be encouraged. And so we come to our passage. To this end also we pray for you always. To this end also. To what end? Simply Paul is saying, as you're enduring persecution, this reveals you're worthy of the kingdom, you're the real deal, you're the true believer, and in light of your persecutors being eternally punished and receiving you receiving eternal relief, when our Savior comes, to this end, we pray also, because you're the real deal and you're going to be delivered. So we pray this for you. So we pray this for you also. Who is the we? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And if you look throughout First and Second Thessalonians, Paul is a man of prayer, which reveals a loving heart towards those Thessalonians and a dependent heart towards the Lord. People who pray for people, that's what it is. So then he says, to this end we pray for you also, also we pray for you always. And what's the request? Notice the first part here. Notice first that our God, our God, hey, you are believers, he's our God. Our God may count you worthy of your calling. The term count you worthy speaks of meeting a standard, a set standard. It carries the idea of deserving or fitting to do something. And we just saw back in verse 5 that these Thessalonians were enduring persecution and that was an evidence they were worthy of the kingdom of God already. So why would he pray this? That God might count you or may count you worthy of your calling. It's a slight nuance. He doesn't say the kingdom. He says of your calling. Of your calling. That you might meet the standard of your calling. That you might be deserving of your calling. That you might be fit to do that which you are called. You see, the kingdom is the sphere of the saved, but our calling is something we have been called to but not have fully obtained. We've been called, as we'll see, unto his glory and unto uh, uh, his holiness, but yet we're not fully there yet. Look up a little farther in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, uh, verse uh, 13. Or, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, yeah, verse 13. He says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news that God has brought a a provision for our sinfulness, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. It's through the gospel that we were called initially unto a relationship with the living God, a saving relationship with the Lord through Christ. Paul says in Galatians 1.6 that we were called by the grace of God. 
Peter would say in 1 Peter 1.15, like the Holy One who called you were to be holy. Second uh, chap- Peter, or First Peter chapter two verse nine, we're called out of darkness into His marvelous light. Uh, Hebrews uh, three one and Second Timothy one nine, we have a heavenly and holy calling. And it is God who is faithful who called us into fellowship with His Son Jesus our Lord. First Corinthians one nine. A lot of passages. I share so many with you about our calling. God has summoned us into a relationship through the gospel by his grace through what Christ has done on the cross. And yet, within that calling, there is a goal for us to be holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. Ephesians 1. Uh, turn, turn from to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Colossians 1.21, I'll read it for you. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile and in mind engaged in evil deeds... Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. Jesus called us out of sin, death, and sin and death to eternal life, and he's called us unto holiness, to righteousness. Practically speaking, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8:28, and we know that God works all things together for good, for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Conformed to the image of his Son, to be like Christ. And because of this great calling unto holiness, Christ-likeness, we're to walk in a manner worthy. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling for which you have been called. With all humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The goal is to walk in a manner worthy of God. Our walk encompasses the sphere of our life. And how is it we're able to walk in a manner worthy? How is it that we sinful beings can walk in a manner worthy? First of all, we need to have been called into a relationship with Jesus. But then once we have a relationship with Jesus, he by his spirit through his word changes us Back in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, remember in verses 11 and 12, Paul was exhorting and urging in the word, comforting with the word, solemnly testifying with the word, like a loving father with his own children, so that, chapter one, chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 1, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He uses his word and he works on our hearts 
instructing, correcting, reproving, exposing, teaching that we would walk in a manner worthy of this great calling. You see, we are headed into glory. And it is God through his word, as we abide in Christ and trust him, that we are able to walk in a manner worthy of this great calling, this glorious eternal calling. And we see that that is what he does. He does it through faith uh, in him by his spirit. He changes us. We see this again in uh, in Second uh, Thessalonians. He says, and it, and it was, he says that God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You rely and trust in Him. You believe His word and you obey Him by His power and strength. And He changes us and makes us like Christ. So Paul is saying here. We're praying this. To this end also we pray always for you, that our God may deem you worthy of your calling. He's saying that you would actually live up to it in Christ and thus he could say, yes, you're deemed worthy of that calling because Christ is working in you. Now, it's not perfectly. We know we fail. But we know if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We know if we say we have no sin, we're liars. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we should be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, becoming more and more like him. So he's praying God would count you worthy of your calling, that you would, in a sense, by his power and strength, through his word, by his spirit, live up to that calling. He's praying for that. It's all the work of God. It's all the work of God. He's saying, in effect, we pray that you would always walk worthily of your calling, thus that God would deem you worthy because, in effect, you're walking worthily. It's God's desire for us. This is God's desire for us. So are you allowing the word to work in your heart, trusting in him so that you would walk in a worthy manner? Are you allowing God's word to work in your heart concerning your home relationships, spouse, parents, children, Abiding in Christ so that you will walk in a worthy manner? Are you allowing God's word to work in your heart concerning how you should be serving, loving those in the body of Christ, uh, forbearing, uh, forgiving, uh, so that you will walk in a manner worthy? Are you allowing the word to work in your heart concerning how you should trust and abide in Jesus as his word abiding in you so that you will walk in a worthy manner? This is a work of God, not a work of man. Renew your minds with this truth and allow him to work through you. It's all him. That's what Paul, and that's why he's praying that. Remember, back in the end of 1 Thessalonians, faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. When we just learn that and trust in Jesus, we just learn that and are willing to admit what he says regarding our lives. We're willing to allow his analysis to to ring true in our hearts and confess when need be. When we're allowed to trust him and believe what he said. You know, there's so much stuff out there. We can look at this and this and this, or we can trust in Jesus and believe what he has said. So we have the request here. He says that God would count you worthy or deem you worthy of your calling. And then there's a second request, which has two parts to it. 
Notice what he says here, back in our passage, verse 11. And, this is God as a subject, and that God, God would fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Now here, the term fulfill every desire applies to both for goodness and for the work of faith with power. It's quite an amazing uh, prayer. It's quite an encouraging prayer when you think about it. Wow, because we can desire things and we fail. We can be so discouraged. I failed. But God is so good. We still desire the right thing if you've been changed. And his prayer is that God would fulfill it. Notice what he says here. He says, to this end, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of calling and fulfill, first of all, every desire for goodness. That's quite an amazing statement. You see, when we come to faith in Christ, our desires change. We receive a new heart. And indeed, when we renew our minds with the, with, by the word of God, the spirit changes our hearts. <coughs> and we will desire the things of him, those things that are good. That are good. When we're walking with him, we desire to be like him. When, we're not, when we fail, we desire to be forgiven and be changed that we would not do that again. That's a desire for goodness. Those are desires for goodness. And what is good? Remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. He says, and he was sitting, he was setting out on a journey, speaking of Jesus, and a man ran up to him and uh, knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus cuts through the mustard because he knows what's really going on in the guy's heart. And his answer exposes that. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? He says, there is no one good but God alone. The implication is, you don't believe I'm God, so why do you call me good? He's exposing where his heart was at. But the point is, there is no one truly good but God. No one good but God. Indeed, we see that God is characterized by good, his deeds are good, and his redeemed people, because of Christ, are good, and they are saved unto good works that he has prepared. Let me remind you that the only thing that equips you for good's works is not going to church, not doing certain things. It's actually God's word. Now, certainly you get that in church, but it's God's word that equips us for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, written word, is inspired by God and profitable, beneficial, leads to advantageous results for one, teaching, for reproof that exposes where I'm at, for correction that corrects me when I'm exposed, willing to accept the exposition of my heart in a sense, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for what? Every good work, every one. We had this read earlier in Titus chapter 2 that Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There's a difference, a change of heart. His good deeds, not, not good deeds like denominational deeds you see out there from the world trying to earn points with God and with man, but real goodness. In Ephesians chapter 2, after revealing the fact that by grace we've been saved through faith, and that not out of ourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, he says, for we, verse two, chapter 2, verse 10, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for 
good works, that we should walk in them or walk into them in a sense. You see, Paul is praying that God would fulfill every desire they have and we have for goodness. That's really great. That's awesome, and that's God's will. You see, when you desire to do what's right and it's not happening, you hunger and thirst for righteousness and it's not happening, God's good. He desires to fulfill that, and he does it through his Son working in us. Remember Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and what? Do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. This is verse 3. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Every desire for goodness. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him also and he will do it. Amazing. Every desire for goodness. Lord, help me respond the right way. I fail so often. Put a guard over my mouth, Lord. God, help me. That's a desire for goodness. And those desires for goodness come in the context of humility because you've got to admit your failures. Lord God, help me. May he fulfill every single one. Isn't that great? If you're a true believer, you desire goodness. You desire him to help you be good. Unless you're not saved or you've got sin in the way, I tell you, if you don't desire goodness, if you don't desire to be good towards your spouse, then there's a problem. If you don't desire to be good towards do the right thing to do your work hardly under the Lord, that's good. There's a problem. If you don't desire to learn how to respond rightly in the midst of difficulties, then that's a problem. But when you know the Lord, we fail, but we have desires for goodness. His goodness. May he fulfill everyone. And that is so encouraging. You're being persecuted. It's difficult. You want to do what's right. May he fulfill Every desire for goodness. Wonderful. Well, it doesn't stop there. There's more fulfilling here. more fulfilling. He says in the end, he says, and fulfill every desire for goodness and, notice this phrase, the work of faith with power. That's quite a little packed statement, isn't it? The work of faith with power. Well, what does it mean? We saw back in uh, chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians uh, that their faith was working, the work of faith in these Thessalonians. Paul praised God for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. He said, hey man, your work of faith, faith is working in you. And so here we have the idea of work of faith, work, ergon, uh, and faith, pistos. It's, it's, it speaks of the, the work that comes and manifests in actually, excuse me, faith that manifests itself in some type of work, in a sense, or deeds. But what does it mean? You see, genuine faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ will produce something in you. Not demon faith. Demons believe and they, they shudder. This is faith in a, in a real true Savior believing what he said. Turn to James chapter 2. This is the best discourse on faith working in Scripture. Well, there's all over the place, by the way, but this is a more direct one. You see, if we believe in Christ and we believe his word, that's going to manifest in our actions. What you, do, what you truly believe does manifest in your actions. If you believe he has it all in control, then you don't need to worry. When you're tempted, you realize, you go back to, nope, he's got it in control. It's going to manifest 
in your actions. James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? There's the key to interpreting this whole passage. Uh, can someone who says they believe in Jesus but it doesn't manifest in their life, can that type of faith, this theoretical faith, save that person? Is that a saving faith? Well, he's going to answer the question here. It's about saving faith. It says in verse 14, what use is it, my brother? A man says he has faith, but no works. Can that faith save him? And then he gives an illustration in the context of love, because love is a manifestation of faith. If a brother or sister is out clothing or in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, this is a very spiritual Jewish statement, go be filled, be in peace, be filled and warmed. But you don't give them what, and you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? That means your faith in Christ isn't manifesting in a heart of compassion towards that person in need, which would work out in helping them. You see, if you truly did trust in Christ and love his people. Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. It's not really real, basically. It's not there. It's, it's dead. He says, by being by itself. If your life isn't changed, uh, then that faith is maybe not a real faith that actually saves. Verse 18, but someone may say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works. I'll show me my faith by my works. See, true faith in Christ Jesus will manifest in obedience to the word of God and the God of the word. Not a faux obedience, but a real heart-changed obedience. And he goes one step further to reprove the one who has dead faith. You believe God is one. That's the way the Jews, yes, I believe God is one. Here is where the Lord your God is one. They believe that. Yes, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. They have a faith. They believe. They ascend to the facts. Telling you the facts is not genuine faith. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that without faith, faith without works is useless. It's empty you can ascertain to the facts concerning God. You can understand the information about the gospel, whatever it might be. The demons believe that too. But that's not uh, a faith that could save and will manifest in your life. And then he gives some examples. He gives two examples here of uh, the patriarch and, and a, and a uh, prostitute. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? He, Genesis 22, God said, go, take your son. And he believed by faith. And he believed that God could raise him up from them. He's saying, offer your son. That's whom these promises were going to come through. He had to believe that God would keep his promises even in that. And then, therefore, he thought God could raise him from the dead. And he did it. He said, we will worship and return to you. Was he not justified um, by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, faith was working with his works. There you go. As a result of his works, faith was perfected or complete. It was manifest as genuine, complete, mature. And the scripture was fulfilled, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, man is justified by, a man is justified by works, not by faith alone. Now, we know it's by faith alone, but it's, he's saying it's got to be a faith that works. You see? And then we have Rahab the harlot. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body is without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, we know we're not saved by works. I just mentioned it before. For by grace you've been saved 
uh, through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But if you believe, your faith should work. It should work. And Paul's going to be praying that it would work powerfully. That every desire for it to work powerfully. Lord, I desire to trust you completely. That's my desire. May that work out powerfully. May you really trust him powerfully. May it work out. You see, believers don't simply hear the word of God. They, by faith, act upon it. Let me share some passages. James 1.22, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Deluded hearers. You hear it, you walk away, your life's not changed because your heart isn't changed. Right? For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has forgotten what kind of person he is. You come in, you hear the word of God, you maybe get convicted for a second about yourself, you walk out, you're back to the same way you were after you walked out. Something's wrong. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, that means dwells in the law of liberty and abides by it, lets it abide and rest in their heart, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. First John chapter 2, and we know that by this we know we have come to know him. If you want to know if you know Jesus, here's the test. If we keep his commands or commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commands is a liar. Doesn't mean you don't sin. He said in chapter 1 of, of 1 John, hey, you know, we need to, we confess our sins, right? If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. But the one who is truly his is going to obey his word. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought also to walk in the same manner as he, is, as he walked. There should be a change in your life. Not perfection, not glory, but a change. There should be humility when we sin and humility as we trust in Christ. So then, Paul is praying that God would fulfill every desire of these Thessalonians for their faith to work itself out. Isn't that great? You desire that your trust in Christ would manifest in changes in the way you respond to people, in the way you act, in the way you are, in what you do. And then notice he says at the end of it, with power, or literally in power. That's amazing. Powerfully working out. It's God's will for our faith to work out powerfully. That means him to work out powerfully in us, as we trust him, by the way. Think about Galatians chapter 5. You desire to love the body of Christ. May that be fulfilled powerfully as you trust Jesus. You desire to be kind. May that work out powerfully as you trust Jesus. You desire it. You're not there yet. You desire self-control. May it work out powerfully. You've got to be thinking about his, his things and him. And don't forget where that power comes from. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verse 18. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, or you could translate it this way. They've got it in italics. It literally could be translated, having had the eyes of your heart enlightened. Since you've been enlightened, the New King James translates it that way, and I believe they're correct. So that you may know, and he says the, these what's here. What is the hope of your calling? Guess what? The hope of your calling. You would understand it. Wow, what great hope we have. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? I pray you'd understand that. And then notice this. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? May your faith in Christ work out powerfully. Work out powerfully. Your desire for it to work out. It's that same uh, power that raised Christ from the dead. You can read on in, in Ephesians 1. Then how about Ephesians 3, verse 20? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That's a great one to put us in our place and to to praise him, right? Uh, He says here, uh, according to the power that works within us, it's in us, that's the spirit working in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or think. We've got to trust him. May that faith in Christ Believing who he is, what he said, and what he will do, may it work out powerfully in your life. That's a good prayer. Pray that for one another. It's a good prayer. Paul desires that for them. That means that's God's desire. It's God's desire. It's very encouraging, isn't it? When you're being suffering, when things are going bad, when you trip up, whatever it might be, it's very encouraging. It's very encouraging. You see, God is a great God, and we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ as His Word works out powerfully by His Spirit in our lives. In our lives. So then we've seen that we need to allow uh, uh, God's desires. We, we need to trust that God will, will take these desires and fulfill them. We need to pray for that. Every desire for goodness and that the faith would, would work out powerfully in our lives that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It's a great prayer. And notice the result. Verse 11. I'll read it into the result in verse 12. To this end, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. And here we go. Here's the, here's the purpose or, or, or goal. In order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him. You see, because if you're trusting Christ and he's working that out powerfully, he gets the glory. You see, if you're desiring to uh, do what is good and allow him to do it through you, he gets the glory. You see, it's so that he'd be glorified. When this works out that way, who gets the glory? It's Christ. It's Christ. In order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified. The name represents the person. And it's God's desire that our Lord Jesus Christ be exalted, to be glorified. And that happens when we trust in him and allow his character and goodness to be manifest in us. And he fulfills those prayers for our desires. But you've got to get your desires right. Every desire for goodness. Every desire for the work of faith to be powerfully. You've got to get your desires right. Got your desires right. God is is eagerly desiring to uh, bring this about. 
that Christ would be glorified. He says that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lord is our Lord, obviously, they're believers, so it's our Lord. The Lord, the term speaks of the, the, the of deity, the Lord, the I am. Jesus, uh, Matthew one twenty one. you shall name him Jesus, Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. Christ, Messiah, speaks of the, the, the king who would suffer for the glories to follow, who would reign forever and ever. That our Lord Jesus Christ... So when you desire the things of Christ, you desire to walk in a manner worthy, you desire his goodness, you desire your faith in him to work out powerfully, and he answers that prayer, who gets the glory? Christ does. In order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Glorified in you, first of all, in your life. Your life manifests the glory of God in what he is doing through you. He's glorified in you. And second, he's glorified as we are in him. You know, we're going to share in his glory. First Thessalonians 2.12, we're going to enter into his kingdom and glory. First Peter uh, 5, 1 Peter um, 4.10, uh, or 5.10, let me find that here. 1 Peter 5.10. Let me just read it. I can't find it here. First Peter 5.10. He says here, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his what? Eternal glory in Christ. Eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Tremendous. We will be glorified in Christ for all eternity. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, God will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. There's a day where there'll be no more sin, sorrow, or tears. We will be glorified in Christ. In Christ. We see the tremendous reality that uh, momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Second Corinthians 4. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, God is a God of glory and grace. You see, when he came, he was, uh, we, we see in John 1.14, we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. And when we rely on him, Christ is glorified in us and we in him. In us and we in him. But he's not done. Notice our passage. He says here, in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. And then he says something that we got to remember. According to the grace of our God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all by his grace. It's by his grace. You see, there's no way apart from grace to walk worthily. There's no way apart from his grace to have our desires for goodness manifest and fulfilled in us. You see, there's no way apart from his grace to have our faith worked out powerfully. 
There's no way that Christ ultimately will be glorified apart from us functioning in his grace. And his grace is what? It's his unmerited favor. We didn't earn it. It's his favor towards us. We see in 1 Peter 5.10, he's the God of all grace. We know that he was full of grace and truth. We know that, 1 John or John 1.14. We know that his grace was manifest in coming for us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 8.9, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. That's his grace. His favor towards us in saving us. His saving grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The offer is open to all. For by grace we've been saved through faith. And yet we function by his grace also. Romans chapter 5, we have the privilege of entrance into this grace in which we stand. We stand. The God of all grace functions through us when we rely on him. You see, God's not glorified if it's not by his grace, according to his grace. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We're not adequate to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Jesus told the apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. The Christian life is all about functioning by his grace. And how we do that is we believe what he said We trust in him. We rely on Christ. And then he is glorified. How did the Apostle Paul start this letter and 1 Thessalonians? Grace to you and peace. How did he end the first letter to the Thessalonians and this letter? The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's by his grace. So then when you desire the things of Christ, you desire to walk in a manner where you desire his goodness, you desire your faith in him to be worked out powerfully, and he answers those prayers, fulfills those desires completely, Christ is glorified in us and we in him because it's all by his grace. To this end, also we pray for you always that our God may catch you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful passage. May the Lord cause us to live up to our great calling, fulfill our desires for goodness, and our faith to be worked out powerfully so that Christ is glorified by his grace. To some of you, this is foreign. Your desires are not for his goodness or his ways. They really are not. And that's an evidence that something's not right in your heart. And God's gracious. And he offers salvation to you that your heart would be changed and you would desire the things of him. Maybe some of you have become dulled. Sin has gotten in the way. Your desires are out of whack. The the things of the world have just come up and become prominent rather than the things of Christ. Confess that, that your desires would be back in line and that he would fulfill those desires for the character of Christ to be powerfully manifest in you. Do we pray this way for one another? We should. Do we think this way? We should. May the Lord cause us to live up to our great calling, fulfill those desires for goodness, and work out powerfully in our lives as we trust him by his grace so that he is glorified.
Let's pray. Lord, I just praise you and thank you for this passage. What a wonderful, wonderful encouragement. May we not forget what we have heard. May he, may you fulfill these desires for goodness. May you deem us worthy of our calling. May you uh, cause us to uh, our faith to powerfully work out. Uh, and Lord, may your son get all the glory. And may it all be by your grace. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.